guys, welcome back to another Sisyphus 55 podcast. I'm here with Housecat. Hello. And uh, today we are going to discuss the good life, generally, and also in the context of a paper that I had recently published in November that was the end product of about two, three years of um, psychological research in this lab as an undergraduate. And um, yeah, I was, I was quite proud of that. And um, I, I guess we should probably just begin with what the paper was about specifically. Yeah. But first, a word from our sponsor. Yeah. Um, so this was a very old data set. Um, and I was approached by my psychology professor to look at basically just a collection of personal statements that people had made um, that were answers to this question that was asked, um, what is your idea of the good life? And uh, they didn't really know what to do with this data, but it was attached to a larger study that looked at personal goals, so goal progress, what these goals were. It looked at autonomous motivation, which is this uh, the extent to which you are uh, assigning these goals as being volitional or self-concordant or as being in line with your values. And um, it had to, uh, it also measured subjective well-being, depression, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, eventually we came to this idea that maybe we should just look at um, another measure that was included in the study, which was, um, we, we asked them basically, to what extent do you think your current life is in line with this statement of the good life that you had heard written at the very start of the study? And then through two, three time waves, they were, they kept being reminded of it. So in like the start of the school year in September, they were asked to write down the good life and they were asked to rate the extent to which their life was similar to it. And then three months later, they did the same reading. Then three months later, they did the same rating. And throughout this, they also had their goal progress checked um, their happiness checked, uh, all of that stuff. It's a longitudinal study. And um, was there any way to like validate their goals or like what they were doing? Um, so, so this is one of the uh, maybe pitfalls or issues that comes up in self-reported data and self-assessments. And uh, most psychological research you look at in personality domains is um, largely reliant on self-assessment. And um, whenever you read papers, and this was included, is that there will be like a section called limitations. And it's just basically that, you know, we can't prove that if somebody wrote down, um, I want to uh, be a hap or be a, a better friend at the start of the year, very difficult to measure, especially this is like a data set of like hundreds of people measure if they're actually achieving any mm -hmm. sort of progress on that. And also we don't know their benchmark of progress. Right. So at the end of the day, it's easier for us to just rely on them to hopefully mm -hmm. be like somewhat, um, uh, maybe not accurate, but at least honest in their assessment. So they're, they're giving us their rating of goal progress. And there's a whole line of research that looks at something called self enhancement, which is this kind of, seemingly fundamental trait that most people have to always make themselves look better. And uh, I'm sure that this is uh, contributes to some of the goal progress that's reported. Um, but yeah, we can get into that when we talk about 
research and stuff. Yeah, that I got another question, but you were still explaining it, so go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but uh, going back to the paper, so we uh, basically we, we called this, this measure, this rating, uh, good life coherence. So the extent to which your good, good life and your real life are coherent with each other. And once again, they are rating this, so um, we generally use the term perceived good life coherence because we also can't, as you pointed out, we can't uh, actually, you know, objectively rate the extent to which these people are living their good life. You know, we don't really know exactly what that means to them. It's more of how they feel. And uh, we found that they were, um, the, the, the greater your perceived good life coherence, the happier you were, the more goal progress you had, and uh, the more autonomous motivation you experienced. And um, there, there was quite a few other results that we found uh, throughout the study that were just scrapped because of the complexity. Um, and actually, to add on to this whole notion of like validity, we did a, a follow-up study that's being worked on now during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, where we basically replicated the same thing. And instead of subjective well-being or happiness we looked at depression so we looked at the extent to which good life coherence is associated with depression and this time we didn't just have them measure their depressive symptoms we also asked family or friends to give their uh, ratings of how depressed these people appeared and we found the exact same sort of results but flipped so good life coherence was related to lower rates of depression so that's, I, I guess that's one way you can make uh, reports more valid is Witnesses. you have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, th- th- and they're usually called informants or, um, that makes them sound more like snitches. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also like, like, uh, I think when you have somebody that's, uh, secretly working for the psychology lab and they're presented in a study and they're interacting with participants, but the participants don't know that they're part of the lab, they're usually of- called yeah (laughs) well they're called confederates an agent of the national health yeah (laughs) no but uh it's it's uh it's one way to make it a little bit more valid but i mean with research it's it's, there's always a ton of limitations but uh that that's just the general that's you know without getting into the theory of it or anything that's kind of the dry overview of what the paper was about um but i think once we start discussing kind of what this means because it does sound a little bit i guess basic so just like in i guess for me to rationalize it it's kind of figuring out um if someone feels like this goal resonates strongly with them and they go for it um maybe i'm wording that wrong uh, goal do you mean like a like a <laughs> life goal or like a personal goal like do you, are you talking about goals in good life or are you talking about goals in yeah in the good life in the good life okay yeah so like um if they feel that what they're striving to do is true to them um that should make them feel like they're living their good life yes yeah and without you know this this is something we kind of struggled with in writing the paper because you can't make certain claims uh and we're in kind of in a field that's a little bit philosophical but you still can't make these like strong assertions like they are living their good life or they are being true to themselves but there is something to be said about the fact that um you know and, and and this is kind of what my takeaway was loosely without really necessarily saying it even though i'm about to say it is uh the despite 
a sort of uh, view of psychology that, that sees people as being largely unaware of their um, true motivations or desires. Um, it actually looks like, at least in this instance, in this study, there's like people do generally seem to know what they want and perhaps know these sort of deeper volitional goals and, and values. And they appear to recognize when they're following them. And this seems to be associated with not necessarily result in, but be associated with greater happiness, greater goal progress and greater volition. Um, and, uh, I mean that, that kind of, uh, if you want to talk about self concordance theory. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to get into that. Yeah. So, cause that's, that's one of the theoretical, uh, kind of, uh, backbones to this study and to back up a little bit. So, um, I work in a lab that is, a, a human motivation lab and its specific theoretical framework is self-determination theory, which posits that there are three basic psychological needs of autonomy, relatedness, and competence. And uh, competence is a sense of mastery. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Relatedness is a need for belonging. Um, and autonomy is the idea that, um, you know, you're living or you're, you're living in agreement with your behavior and you have some sense of ownership in your decisions um, and you're living your life. You, you're not being controlled, basically. Um, and uh, the focus of this study is mostly on autonomy. And there's a kind of subsection of self-determination theory called self-concordance theory, which was developed by Ken Sheldon. Um, And he uses self-concordance and autonomy kind of interchangeably. But to be self-concordant is to be autonomous. It's to be concordant with one's self or true self. Um, And he even has a paper that I ended up citing quite a bit called Becoming Oneself. And uh, uh, I think it was in like 2000. 14 or something i and saw his name a lot in the paper yeah yeah he's like a yeah and, and he has a more philosophical bent um and it was very useful to kind of uh, read his his work when writing this paper and self-concordance theory is basically this idea that um when you ask a person to write down three personal goals let's say um and then so so let's say like they write down i want like a 4.0 gpa um, I want to uh, improve my poetry, and I want to learn how to ski. And then you ask them, to what extent are these, is, is this goal like truly something you want to do? To what extent is this something that you feel is that you have to do, or you're being forced to do? And people could pretty honestly, even though they've generated these goals completely in their own volition, freely, they'll rate some of them as being kind of controlling like, Oh, like my parents kind of want me to have a 4.0 GPA. They're still pursuing them and they still Mm -hmm. are trying to like attain them and stuff. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's controlling. And then the, uh, you know, the perfection of poetry, for example, that's more autonomous. Like that's, that's a, that would be answering affirmatively to the question, uh, to what extent is this goal reflective of your, true self or is something that you enjoy doing for the for its own sake and so self-concordance is that and people that are self-concordant he found tend to you know in similar fashion uh have greater autonomous motivation greater goal progress goal attainment happiness so on and so forth um and 
one of the things that's kind of considered in this paper is that the goals are likely, when people are living in accordance with their idea of their good life, these goals are probably concordant with, with the good life. Yeah. Um, well, I'll just ask this, um, just because I imagine there's a bunch of different answers to it, um, but what do you think it is that makes people confused with uh, their goals and, let's say, their parents' goals or somebody else's? Like, where do you think that confusion starts? Mm. Like, yeah. where, where someone will ask, what is your goal? And they'll write down that 4.0, knowing that still, that's not really my goal, but they'll still, it comes to mind, so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's multiple ways to approach this question. Sheldon writes about... Um, one of the one of the kind of potential enhancers or fundamental traits of people that are more self-concordant is something called trait mindfulness, which is almost like the idea that, uh, you know, in the same way people can have differences and openness and conscientiousness, you know, like the big five personality, yeah. they can also differ in their mindfulness. And mindfulness is kind of related to, you know, self-awareness that they're actually like, they're aware in the present moment of like their needs and um, just generally more uh, concentrated and have a greater sort of sense of self. So I guess it's this blend of self-awareness and mindfulness. Um, and I think we know that you can enhance that for sure. And that also some people just happen to be born with more of a sense of mindfulness and self-awareness than others. Um, and then I also think and this is a bit more complicated because this is like getting into like Kahneman's like dual process theory and a little bit of something called cybernetic personality coherence. And, uh, I'm starting to sound like just a series of random words, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, cy cybernetic personality coherence theory is, uh, is basically personality coherence just in general is just this idea that like our personalities are these kind of subunits and you know in sort of a Jungian way they can it's it's more psychologically beneficial the more kind of holistic one's personality is so the more integrated it is so uh this is um kind of investigated when we look at goals so goals kind of are the the manifestations of values and desires and targets of our personality and um we can kind of imagine like a hierarchy of goals and the, the higher up you go, the more abstract the goals are, the less concrete they are. And strangely enough, also the more close they are to one's sense of self, their true self, the lower down you go, the more concrete they get less personal. Yeah. So a very low level concrete goal could be, um, grabbing a glass of water that's like almost non-conscious it's like guaranteed success yes <laughs> very high success rate and it's very impersonal it's it basically has to do with just you know basic biological needs and stuff like that um and it's very concrete and then you go up a little bit and it's studying for this exam and that's like you know it's it's a it's a little bit more personal um a little bit more of a complex task still pretty concrete. There's no real values attached to it. And then it's get into medical school. That goal is kind of like a, could be considered like a life goal. 
it could be considered maybe a mid-level goal. Um, and it's a little bit more personal. It's starting to un- unveil some sort of personality there, maybe some sort of value orientation, definitely more complex than like picking up water. Um, and then we start to get into like the very high level goals. Transcendence. That, yes. <laughs> no. And they start to get more abstract. Right. So, you know, cause, cause you can start it off like, well, why are you drinking the water? You can survive and yeah. stay hydrated. Why do you need to stay hydrated? Because you need to focus in order to study for this exam. Mm-hmm. Why do you need to study for this exam to get into medical school? They're all attached to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we start getting into, well, why are you trying to get into medical school to become a doctor? Why are you trying to become a doctor? Maybe you have some sort of, um, you know, uh, care for for other people. Maybe you have some sort of uh, power-hungry desire to, you know, just attain that image of being a doctor. Um, who knows? And maybe maybe your level of abstract isn't quite as as you know high as other people's, and maybe it differs. Mm-hmm. But between the the goals and these hierarchies is this sort of idea that you know they're not always easily attached like as i mentioned this sort of ladder of they're all sequentially aligned with each other sometimes people just happen to have a better ability to cohere all of these like rationalize it all together yeah and and they found um actually bauer who was uh, the main editor of this paper uh he shut out yeah in in the first revision um, he, uh, kindly pointed us to one of his own papers. Um, and I think it was Bauer and McAdams in nice 2004, <laughs> but it, but it was, it had very much to do with this idea of personality coherence. And they found that the coherence between goal levels, um, so goals that were related to one another actually resulted in greater progress and greater, uh, well-being and, and so forth. So how we conceived of the good life in this paper is we um, looked at Aristotle's definition of the good life, um, which is basically it's the ultimate goal. It's almost a meta goal. And all other goals are sort of neatly, uh, in an ideal sense, supposed to kind of, they're supposed to sort of like supplement it or add to it. And um, using this kind of idea of like abstract, um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to think of, the good life is basically this, this ultimate meta super goal that, um, I don't know if, if, if goals underneath it are cohering to it, it's already very abstract. Um, then you're possibly seeing greater benefits. Um, and you know, maybe it's needlessly complicated as a theory. And so, yeah, just, uh, what you were saying, um, just how, how it sounds to me is that correct me please if this is wrong but like it sounds like some people when you're talking about those lists of goals that kind of relate to each other it's like they'll see the goals as individual steps whereas it seems like other people are able to to see it bigger picture and they can actually gain momentum with each goal whereas the the former they kind of have to stop and restart at each one yeah i mean sometimes you don't have to stop or restart but um just less like fluidity yeah well you would have to stop and restart at each goal if there was a lack of integration between goals um it's it's you would you would kind of struggle you'd go well i'm 
doing this and then maybe you'd reach like what they sometimes call an action crisis where you actually don't know what you're doing and it can completely throw you off but it's actually very beneficial because it makes you reevaluate mm-hmm. what your values are and what your kind of life plan is and um this isn't also to suggest that people have this sort of underlying concrete life plan that's just floating out there like it's it's also you know not that i can like claim this empirically but it's i would assume it's very sort of free-floating and integrative and it's constantly being reworked and mended but at the same time there is some some sort of fixed essence to it um yeah yeah well it's like uh I always forget if this is a word or not, but it's like a very um, egoic study, I guess, and that there's a lot of, um, it's relying a lot on how people feel about themselves, and and it's, it's um, that sort of, you're relying on, like, intuition, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's the other thing, is I think when just you are talking to a friend or a family member, and they're maybe having to figure out some sort of tough life decision, the common piece of advice given to them is to trust their gut and to like think with their heart or mm. something like that. Like this sort of appeal to the self that isn't rational yeah, almost. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's who knows, who knows how true that is beyond just like anecdotal yeah. evidence. But I mean, it seems intuitive that, that that's how, it would work yeah i just yeah i find it really interesting just because like i know you said you can't uh make certain like claims but it's interesting seeing that uh at least to me some people it's like they they have a little more insight into what's happening like internally or or they're a little less externally fixed Mm -hmm. like they're they can take it in but also reassess inside it's not all just uh because, yeah, something you were talking about earlier in terms of, like, the confusion between someone else's goal and their own just made me think a bit about, like, being gullible mm-hmm. and that it's usually when you're only taking things externally and it's just you don't really know what's going on, so you trust the first thing. Yeah, well, th- this it reminds me of uh, dual processing theory by Kahneman, which... I remember I was originally going to bring up in one of the first drafts of the paper, but um, we realized it was like very, very complicated and just like needlessly complicated. It's <laughs> it's like a cognitive theory and more, more like personality. But um, he kind of proposes this idea that isn't entirely new, but I think it, it helps with this discussion that we almost have two selves Um, We have this kind of momentary self, um, the one that is, you know, perceiving things. And like me right now, I'm talking, I'm I'm moving my hands around. I'm not really uh, like actively being aware of this, Um, but I'm, I'm in this moment. I'm right here. And then there's this other me that is reflective. And it's the one that's thinking about the past and the future. And it's trying to integrate these things and it's trying to form some sort of coherent narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was very interested in the miscommunication between these two selves, yeah. that they very rarely agree on things. And that this is probably what causes a lot of people to end up going down the wrong way in general and, yeah. and just 
why do we tend to lead a lot? Why is it so difficult to lead a life um, that um, we would want to live? Yeah. Well, yeah. and um, I, I was, I just finished the book by uh, Michael Pollan, how to change your mind. And just at the end, they talk a little about um, depression and anxiety. And I really like the way one person put it, because it has to do with what you're saying in, in reference to the, uh, our sort of biographical nature, like our past and, present and future selves and he was kind of illustrating depression as being you're fixed on the past and then anxiety as you're fixed on what could go wrong in the future and I think that is where a lot of that uh communication uh failure happens is when you you're not in the present anymore you're stuck in those two yeah yeah no that's like a very good good way to think about um the, the, this kind of past and future self and um yeah i don't know it's it's this theme of like integration that yeah. I, th- I think is I, I think it's very like holistic it's it's very much um across cultures i'd almost make that claim yeah. is this sort of idea of totality and, and self-awareness and integrating different aspects of the self and also this embrace of like multiple selves well speaking about like the the whole self like um, I think someone who's really important to the article that I'd like to hear more about uh, from you is uh, Carl Rogers, who had a lot to do with the... Um, he sort of created, uh, him and Young and a few other people sort of created the idea of uh, the self that we know today and that we're running a lot of research off of. So how did Carl Rogers and people like him help influence the study? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I guess in like a psychological sense, they definitely were sort of the, um, you know, probably them and William James, like the forefathers of, of this sort of like ego. I mean, uh, although now I think about it, like there there is like actual ego psychology. Yeah. You look at like Anna Freud and but but just this idea of like a coherent unitary self. Yeah. Um, And I think that that's. When I first approached the project, I think that was my idea of the self also was was uh, this kind of singular unit that people are almost trying to um, in order to live a good life Get they, into. Yeah, they were almost trying to like penetrate. Mm-hmm. But you know the 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 opening quote of the article by Carl Rogers suggests a, a little bit more of a nuanced mm-hmm. view. Um, he says the good life is a process, not a state of being. It is a direction, not a destination. Um, and I think he's suggesting more of a, a free-floating sort of ego that's very open and receptive to alterations and change. Mm-hmm. And there are perhaps sort of value indicators within it that are that are pointing it to certain goals and desires. But then sometimes along the way, they might be informed and in turn be altered in in their own sense yeah by other value indicators yeah. and you know there's probably like a very complex uh system or model that could be developed to explain something like this if that was ever possible um and well, you almost wouldn't want it to be possible because because i also think one one aspect about the human life that's so beautiful is the fact that it's such a mystery of how we uh, ever really have these moments of knowing our true selves or living a good life or even knowing what we want. Yeah. Um, it just reminds me of uh, Man and His Symbols by Young. Um, I forget which 
culture it's from, but they bring up this idea that in this one culture, they have this idea of the self being this sort of uh, shaman or, or spirit-like thing. And, and uh, you know, we've all had insights and we've all had gut feelings. And Jung kind of said that was like this the spirit in all of us directing us in a certain way. So is that kind of what you mean by like they're getting pointed? Yeah, and, and Jung was a uh, symbolist. So he, he very much like believed in the, obviously like the archetypes and that there was some sort of underlying like structure and he would have very much proposed this idea of, of almost like a, you know, almost like a skeletal, like, like underbelly of, yeah. of mythology that that's informing, uh, our lives if we could only tap into it. And yeah, he, he kind of thought that we made or were discovering all that stuff because it was a reflection of what we thought was going on inside. So it's like this constant back and forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I actually think, I don't know, because I, I, Rogers is, I would say different in that Rogers doesn't necessarily ascribe any sort of universalist, uh, like theory to this as much as Jung does. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah he's more about what does you know and, and he's definitely one of the uh, greatest figures in client-centered therapy for a reason is what does the person want yeah in that moment what do they want what do they need um and not in like a base sort of like uh animalistic sense but what do they truly like value in yeah. that moment well, and he, uh, yeah. yeah well he was really special because he he essentially went this person isn't uh, doesn't need to be fixed into this. They just need to realize what they are and, and get comfortable with that. Like they don't need to change. Mm -hmm. I found that really special. Yeah, no, he, uh, and, and I, the reason why I used him in this article is because I think he's like a very good, uh, transition to why autonomous motivation and this whole idea of autonomy is such an interesting measure to use. Mm. because it's because it's it's such a um i don't know the closest indicator we have to some sort of intuitive sense of uh you're actually living your own life you're doing what you want to do right. that goes beyond just like happiness or something you know you can ask someone if they're happy and they could be like boozed out of their mind in a bar or something yeah. like that and uh you know and they'll say yeah i'm happy but like reflectively, if you mm -hmm. ask them, are they happy? That's a little bit different. Um, and I think a taunt, like asking someone if they're, if they're living in accordance to what they think their life should be, it, it hits something a little bit deeper and a little bit more meaningful than beyond just, are yeah. you living like pleasurably? Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause I remember it was something I was thinking about a few years ago was this idea of like toxic positivity and that, when you say happiness or are you happy, a lot of people think of this sort of like cartoon like idea of joy and and pleasure. But like like everything, like every emotion, like everyone has their own way of feeling that. And I think it's uh, it's what made Rogers so special is that it made people realize I don't need to feel that type of happy. I just like wh how do I get my own version? I guess. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, that's a that's a nice way to think of it is is to have your own happiness, not just to be happy. Yeah, and one one of the 
things we were looking at originally when we were looking at the good life is are there distinct differences between the happy life and the meaningful life um and if you break this up into more kind of ancient philosophy there's this debate of eudaimonia versus hedonia and you know hedonic pleasure the hedonic life is one of you know you're living kind of more epicurean and just enjoying the senses and not really reflecting as much it's a little bit more animalistic mm-hmm. um, and not in, in like a necessarily like derogatory sense and then the eudaimonic life aristotle strictly defined as you're like living by these specific virtues yeah um, but more broadly it's like you're living meaningfully um and i think roy baumeister he actually found an art he, or he wrote uh, he, he did a study where he actually classified people based off of whether they were living happy lives or meaningful lives and he found um that you know there is like actual differences and happy people tend to or like the people living a happy life um they tend to not have as many goals or anything they tend to be a little bit more susceptible to major life changes and and people in meaningful life you know they they had a sense of duty and pride in their life but they weren't necessarily like uh always happy yeah and and he his argument was that this is like important in a sense because you can claim that, you know, someone uh, who's spent their whole life, uh, you know, floozing around and going to bars and, you know, uh, flirting and, you know, never really developing any serious relationships, but they didn't really matter to them. Living large. Yeah. Largely living. <laughs> but at the very end of the day, they haven't really contributed anything. Mm. They haven't really done anything. Still. At the, at the end of the day on their deathbed, you ask them, have they lived a happy life? They hypothetically would say yes, and that's completely fine. Mm-hmm. And also a person that, you know, is brought into a concentration camp um, has to endure great horrors and uh, sacrifices. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can ask them, have they lived a meaningful life? And, yeah, they still have lived a meaningful life. So it doesn't... It doesn't uh, partial off or, or take uh off the the possibility for people across varying circumstances to still live a life of some worth substance, or yeah. substance yeah exactly yeah. um and yeah it definitely made me want to you know in future studies it would be cool to look at you know what are the differences because just the good life broadly is probably some mix between happiness and, and meaning but you know that that goes back into that um that sort of that idea of feeling like uh, the way that they rationalize their their story and who they are, if they can feel like what they've done is meaningful or that it makes them happy. Like it really goes down to trusting yourself and knowing about yourself. Mm-hmm. And I was also thinking that in itself is probably an individual difference in, in how people consider a life well-lived is um, are you living a life that on your deathbed you would want to say was a life well lived or do you want to live a life that in the moment you were saying this is a life well lived and one would probably be more happiness based and one of them more meaning based yeah yeah um i guess following that uh, and i guess to end it off are there any other like psychologists or philosophies or ideologies or anything that contributed to the paper um just any 
ones you want to give credit to? Oh my god. Yeah, I mean, it is a lot of uh, citations. I mean, don't pull up the bibliography. (laughs) Yeah, let's start at the the first citation. Say some links. (laughs) Um, I I think that the, the one goal that kind of stood out to me that I found quite interesting... Or the I guess I guess there were two studies that that stood out to me or two kind of thoughts that helped with this paper, and one of them kind of informed my own kind of idea of the good life was there was a study by Desi and Huta where they looked at um, they had people either generate personal goals that were specifically in the interest of increasing their happiness, so they are making these goals so they will be happier. So it's, you know, something like, I'm going to watch more movies with my wife, or I'm going to walk my dog more, or I'm going to go hang out with my friends once a week. Like, these are specifically for happiness-related reasons. Then they had people generate meaningful goals, goals that meant a lot to them, that were volitional to them, so self-concordant. Right. And they found that the meaningful goals, not only did they... Uh, lead to greater progress they were more likely to be attained they also resulted in greater happiness as a a result no longer duration yeah um whereas the goals that were generated specifically for happiness were uh did not show the same sort of hedonic benefit and it kind of made me think of like that idea of like you know uh having sand in your hand that you know if you try to grab it yeah too strongly it all spills out um, it's, it's, it's happiness is not something that you can kind of pursue in a sense. It's something that happens while you're living your life. Well, and, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it just reminds me of like making music because, uh, like having a good boys night or something or, you know, it feels really good in the moment. Um, but I always get this thing like the next morning or sometimes like a day after, like, you just feel like a little bit, you know, you were up so high and then you're, you know, just back to normal. So you feel a little weird, but I always know with like albums, especially where it can be quite frustrating during it, you can have problems, but the, the amount of time after where you feel just like on top is way longer just cause you put this meaningful work into something. Yeah, no, no, it's definitely like a... And I, guess, and I guess, like, it's there to last, too. Like, that night is a night, but this, you've created something. Yeah, there's definitely something more enduring about meaningful projects, and, um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't know, that study, that study kind of, uh, spoke to me. And then the other is, uh, Laura King, she did these studies on, uh, she came up with this concept of possible selves, and this really informed the methodology of the paper, um, she uh and specifically she came up with this idea of best possible selves and basically it was just asking people um you know like for example she asked divorced women uh what would have the possible self been that remained married to this uh partner oh that's weird yeah and then (laughs) what was your best possible self what was your worst possible self um, and people would actually write it out and she started, and she was kind of interested in, um, and she wrote this in her future directions in one paper is in examining not just possible selves in this sort of a little bit more restricted sense, but just life philosophies in general and how they contribute to ideas of, of, you know, greater psychological well being and so forth. And so this, this paper is a bit of an answer to that call 
in that we're expanding beyond maybe just the self and we're looking at the good life, which is more of like a philosophy. Um, but you know, all these concepts are so closely related, like that, uh, and I think this idea of good life coherence touches on so many of them. You can talk about them, them forever, but I liked, yeah, Laura King's uh, work and, uh, Huda and Desi's were very good. Right on. Um, do you have your own personal interpretation of the good life? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be too hokey and just try to make like an abstract idea of it. And, you know, I do think that they're all very personal. I mean, um, the, the universe is love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you already knew what I was going to say. Um, I, and I think right now I think mine probably changes quite a lot because you're always, I think you're always also projecting yourself like 10, 15 years into the future. It's never like too long. You're not thinking about your like 75 year old, like, like where you want to be in, like when you're 75, you're kind of thinking in this sort of like, you're a little bit healthy. You're kind of, you know, you're a little bit older, a little bit more mature. You have a few more financial resources, like stuff like that. Um, just in general, like your material goods are little bit better you're seeing yourself as your dad yeah yeah but but like you know these are things that they probably bias the insight a lot yeah yeah. but um i think for me it's it's just because of the pandemic and i've been in a city and when i come back home and it's like in the forest it definitely kind of makes me appreciate the slow kind of uh life in the forest and there's deer and there's you know i mean yesterday you and me got threatened by a dude with, oh, a, with a shotgun, which is, you know, that's one of the, <laughs> maybe the one, one of the adverse side effects of living out in the country. But, um, you know, it's still like, I, I am starting to think of, uh, a, a life as, you know, compared to previous years, I, I think I was thinking more materialistically and like fame and everything. And I'm starting to drift a bit more towards a simple life and getting away from people and, I guess you just start to know your values. You're less in, like, in an exploratory mode. Yeah, like what you feel would be comfortable. Mm. Yeah, or, or uh, satisfying. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also always open to it changing. Um, You're always down to clown. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for translating. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Um, just. Yeah, I mean it's it's always changing. There's probably I might like rephrase it differently, but. I think to me it just means if you can, uh, the good life is like if you can be friends with yourself and trust yourself and like really trust yourself. Like, um, you know, like everything we've been talking about, like if you just can trust those feelings and you can, um, you can look at those insights into the future and stuff and you can really sit there with it and, uh, you can enjoy time alone. And like you said, like, taking those slower parts because those aren't always comfortable sometimes you're hit with some stuff you haven't thought about or uh, because you've been busy but just really getting into that and just getting used to like the the person you're you are or that you're in the person that you're in yeah yeah no that is very nice the uh the idea of like uh being a friend to yourself like uh, I've never thought of that. That is, and I, that actually very much ties in with everything that we were saying. Is that idea of volition and being kind of true to yourself? But I think being a friend to yourself is almost better 
um, because it's like, you know, you can be kind of hard on yourself yeah. if you have this quest to always well, want to do more and more. What I mean is like, you know, when you're, you're like with your friends in like a public area or something, you're, you know, you're like kind of with, you know, you're snickering at stuff and like you're teasing each other. If the amount of times I've been like in public and that's going on in my own head where I'm kind of, I'm kind of laughing, I'm making myself laugh. It's like, it sounds a little bit nuts, but I think that's so important that you can have fun with yourself and mm-hmm. you, you just like appreciate who you are. Yeah. But almost from like a secondary perspective. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really like that. Um, words of wisdom. Self-love. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's about everything. Um, um, merch. Oh, yes. Also, we did just recently drop um, some new merch. If uh, you guys are interested, link is in the description. Uh, what is this out on, like the 24th? I think, yeah. All right, yeah. So then the album should be out by Housecat. <laughs> it's self-titled. Um, thanks for the spotlight. No worries. Which year? Uh, which year? Yeah. 2022. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've been in the woods for too long. Yeah, it's that slow lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks for listening. Um, I have no idea when the next podcast episode will be, but 